2: The main meditation today, which I'm focusing on this week, the Zogchen, natural unmeditation, the view of meditation and action of the innate great completeness, Zogchen. Of the three naturals, the three pillars of natural meditation, natural body, just sitting, natural breath and energy, just breathing, letting flow, letting go and third, natural heart mind, not visualizing, etc. And now, in the particular form of the Dzogchen tradition, sky-gazing, sky-space union yoga, to translate right from the Tibetan Namkai knowledge nal sky space union yoga, eyes open and everything open and natural, not closing our eyes or looking inside, not emphasizing concentration or breath-watching or a visualization or mantra. We're just chanting and beginning and end to bracket the main practice, the non-conceptual Naked awareness practice of Dzogchen, Treg Chud, or seeing through, being through, being there, while getting there every step of the way, seeing through, being through. So sky gazing, eyes open, ears open, just going over the basic instructions, based on, again, have I said this, the three naturals? No special posture, no special breath holding or breath pumping, no special thoughts or analysis or things to memorize or investigate into in this part of the practice. I Keep emphasizing this. In this practice, there are other practices in the great Mahayana, Vajrayana tradition, not to mention the whole sutra, yana is the 108 volumes of Buddhist teachings, not to mention the bigger world of spiritual practices, contemplative practices in the world. So eye gazing, sky, space, union yoga, or sky gazing. Emphasizing a little more the out-breath, of course, you're allowed to breathe in, inhaling and exhaling go together very well, Are important, but more with the principle of releasing, of relaxing, (sighs) stroking the vagus nerve as we hear today in the neurodharma texts of the new Western treasure tradition of neuroscience and dharma research, and releasing the happy hormones whose names I can't remember, the dopamine and the flopamine and the, you know, whatever mean rather than the stress hormones of cortisol and other anxiety, fight and flight responses, releasing the happy hormones, relaxing, flooding our body and our being, relaxing. We didn't even know how uptight we were until we learned to relax. You know, like when you go on vacation for square, two weeks, doesn't take your first three or six or nine days just to arrive and relax and say, wow, I finally vacated, almost. I'm almost here now. When do we have to leave? <sighs> and just staying on our seat, on the spot. Now in this awareness, the authentic, unfabricated Buddha within. Not looking up and straining or looking to our Ajna, third eye chakra or crown chakra. Not looking out for anything or into anything or getting stuck in between. Just sustaining present wakefulness, as the texts say. not concentrating, not thinking of stages of insight, not trying to radiate and reabsorb light in this practice. According to principles of Dzogchen, like openness, naturalness, relaxation, awareness, spontaneity and flow, and so forth. This might not sound like much, but it's quite different. You notice I'm not saying renunciation, concentration, concentration suffering, um, transforming, purifying, a lot of things we could think about in the general, gradual approaches that are the base of this. But this is the swooping down from above with the view, the non-dual direct access awakening now teachings, as I've said, not the gradual path from compassion, ethics, and so on, morality, to meditation, mindfulness, awareness, and leading to wisdom and selfless love, the three trainings of Buddhism. And the gradual path, swooping down from the view. to bigger picture. As our friend Mel of Melting Pot Dharma said, sometimes I just know and I intuit that it is all right and I, there's nothing wrong. That's awesome. That's enough to inform the rest of the day and the whole life. It's not majority rule in the spiritual life. That's the tiny chiropractic adjustment that transforms and changes everything, a quantum leap. Then there's room for everything, and all is well and all should be well in this best of all possible worlds, as the Christian mystics sang. Ah, oh, natural great completeness, even given all the shit in this world. But it's up to us whether we get buried under and depressed and bitter and give up or turn it into fertilizer and manure on the fields of Bodhi blossoms so these are some of the principles of Dzogchen naturalness and awareness openness, spontaneity perspicacity like penetrating discernment, not just spacing out room Rinpoche would probably call it precision but I want to go a little more for the discernment, for the, the inside part the perspicacity, sharp recognition what else do we have on the list? Clarity, spontaneity, flow, letting be, and so on. Naturalness, ordinariness. That's very important. Not visualizing Buddhas or waiting for a Shakti pot to open our chakras. <clears throat> or for the light of enlightenment to go off or on or whatever. Or for some blissful feeling that never ends. all, Conditioned states eventually fall apart. That's the problem with them. Not that they're wrong or bad themselves. But we get attached to them and nothing stays forever. But check it out. You don't have to believe it because I said it or Buddha said it, as Buddha himself said. You don't have to believe it just because somebody, Buddha or authority, say it. All conditioned states, everything put together falls apart. That's the law. But check it out. Everything impermanent, ephemeral. Tenuous, contingent, depending on conditions. And when they run out, they're just gone. So letting go doesn't mean throwing things away. It means letting things come. Loosening our grip, it's in our higher self-interest. So we don't get rope burn from holding on too tight to that which is forever going through our fingers. You with me? It's in our higher self-interest to let go a little so we don't get rope burn from the irritation, from the friction of holding on too tight to what's passing. So we practice according to these principles. Notice I'm not stressing here again. I have to say it. Renunciation, philosophy, ritual, mantras, tantras, yantras, mudras, postures. Not there are other practices for that. Tibetan Buddhism is known as the path of skillful means, the Vajrayana, the Diamond Path, Tantrayana, Mantrayana. There's seventeen thousand initiations in it, empowerments, and each of them has a different form or practice or sadhana to visualize and chant. This is not what we're doing here. This is the sunlit clearing at the center of the jungle. Mahamudra is like the sunlit clearing at the center of the thick jungle that's grown up so much from the rain and the sun. And yet this uncorruptible essence remains untouched, form and emptiness inseparable. The empty, radiant, luminous essence uncorrupted by all its pseudopods, its manifestations, its diversity. It's the unity and diversity, the mandala principle, everything center, nothing periphery, nothing outside. The whole graphic principle, the mandala. The whole is in each single part. Nothing missing. That means you, friend. You. The Buddha. Buddha. It's kind of obvious, but it's hard to believe. So in Dzogchen, we say it seems too good to be true, so we can't hardly believe it. Loose translation. It's too close, so we overlook it. It's not outside ourselves, so we can't get it, obtain it, buy it anew. We don't get it by reaching for it. And it's so transparent or ever-present, ubiquitous, that we hardly notice. Like the seekers climbing Mount Analog in the famous novel by René Dommal, looking for the great crystals of enlightenment when Mount Analog itself that they're climbing on is the great crystal, and they can't find any crystals, because it's all crystal all the way down, and by extension, them too. Anyway, this is the outlook, the view, the non-meditation, getting used to that, and the action, natural, proactive, liberating Buddha activity of the great perfection. From the point of view of our practice, which I'm trying to stay with today, not the theory, we practice this sky gazing with the outward gaze, the, the three skies, the outer sky, the infinite metaphor for openness and awareness. This is called the three skies, pith instruction in the Dzogchen meditation text in the oral whispered tradition of the heart essence, Nintig lineage that my teachers and we are part of and many who you would know are part of, the great masters that you would know of, mostly part of almost entirely the heart essence, Nintig lineage the Mahmudrin lineage that the pioneers of Buddhism in this country and this kind of Buddhism, all part of, too many to mention. The outer sky, casting your gaze, your eyes, your gaze into the outer infinite, the outer sky, and then releasing your thoughts and feelings and perceptions into the inner infinite, the inner sky of the mind, of awareness. Are you with me? The inner infinite, the inner sky... And then dropping everything in the secret sky of just being, the primordial being. dropping even meditation, seeking reference points, directionality, goals and aims into the secret, the mystic, invisible, inexpressible sky or infinite of just being. Thus mingling outer, inner and inexpressible levels, the three kayas, in this simple, but potent and profound, Sky practice, sky gazing, space union practice. I'm kind of algebra. in the form of sky gazing. My own teacher, Nosho Kempo, used to talk about his four uh, favorite pith instructions macha, chu, ma ma gum, and ma yang. In this regard, reminding us how to practice. Macha, and I mentioned this during the guided meditation. Macha, not fabricating, not contriving, not building anything, like trying to concentrate for longer period, quantity, or into quality. Not trying to build anything like a visualization or more light and bright. You know, the shadows are also light. Nothing but. So, Macha, these are hard to translate, except by a cluster translation of synonyms. Macha, not making, not building, not f- contriving, not fabricating. And Maza, not doing, not seeking, not m- moving things around, not altering. What our friend over there, whose name I don't know in the earlier question period this morning, called it Lao Tzu's uh, doing non-doing or something like that. The kind of doing that's just naturalness, not doing. It doesn't mean quietism or doing nothing. That's just more one ego strategy. In Chinese, called wu-wei, beyond action and inaction, both. It's like the flow, the great Tao or the river, the flow, not effort and intention, particularly. In Dzogchen, this song is from Pachua Rinpoche, Beyond action and inaction, the sublime dharma is accomplished. That's the principle here of Dzogchen. Beyond action and inaction, both, the sublime dharma is accomplished. Just by staying, by resting, by remaining in the view and checking it out. Is there anything else you really have to do? And if yes... Then just allowing that to transpire with natural responsiveness, not with egotistical reactivity or compulsive do gooderism. Always coming with your cookie cutter and stamping out cookies in the shape that you think they should be in. That's not proactive Buddha activity. So, Macha, Mazu. Ma gum, not even meditating. Don't make meditation one more ordinary, egocentric, strategic self-improvement project activity. The great pioneer Trungpa Rinpoche called it mental calisthenics. Why do that unless you're getting paid for it? Don't just make it one more self-improvement project, more selfing. There is no self anyway, separate, permanent self, and it can't be helped. It's not a self-help project, path of enlightenment. So not meditating even, thus non-meditation, unmeditation, awareness alone, or inquiry, inquiring to what's the deeper meaning here of doing, not doing, jadrel in Tibetan, freedom from action and inaction, freedom, naturalness. Naturalness is the great way of awakening, as the masters say. You can find all this in this text and scriptures. I'm not making it up because I'm lazy. Naturalness and ordinariness is the great way of awakening, as the Zen poem goes, as the Zen Zogchen Masters sang and sing. So we've covered macha, mazu, magam, not doing, not manipulating, controlling, interfering, meditating, making. And then there's the fourth one. Kempo used to laugh, you know, and in my joke, you might think, better read the little print at the bottom of the label where it says, not, the- my yang, not distracted. Oh, that sounded good until now. Ah, But not distracted. Oh, hmm, you better pay attention. There's something more here than meets the little eye. I don't have to do anything. I am Buddha. Screw you. Ah. No, if I'm Buddha, you too. Oh, that's challenging. I don't really like you so much. You are like, you not so much. Yeah. Oh, but what does this imply? The big love, genuine love, is bigger than the polarities and dichotomies of liking and disliking. So, not yet not distracted. Naturally present, yet not so, simply sustaining present wakefulness. That's the way of this particular unmeditation practice of church, so natural meditation, seeing through, being through, church. and because there's some people here who are old students, jaded old Dharma dogs, they want something new, I was thinking what really, what is the point of all this, is Kempo, you know, is getting old, even the now, it's getting kind of old, you know, we need a new now. The now, be here now, the now is getting so old, <laughs> or maybe it's just me, So I was thinking I came up with my own, like, four ways of embodiment, authenticity, and presence. It's kind of like what Kempo was saying, but let's see if we get a little um, deeper and interesting here. Not selfing. Not continually constructing ourself and reifying our separateness and our reality. Not selfing. not resisting or manipulating, not judging and evaluating, conceptualizing, and fourth, not nothing. Because it's really something, ain't it? This great emptiness, it ain't nothing. Not nothing. That's a kind of mind stopper for me. That's kind of everything, nothing special, but everything. The great one taste, as we call it, is an equal flavor. Based on Lord Buddha's own words, I mean, I wasn't there, but it's in all the scriptures. As all the seas have the single savor of saltiness, all of these Buddha dharmas have the single savor of liberation, of ease and relief from the dukkha, the existential angst. Suffering and misery of dualistic, ego based, worldly existence. So that means a lot to me. And opens a world of flow, of naturalness, of spontaneity, of dare I say, oh, new age friends, being myself. You know, be yourself. That sounds good. See you at the bar. I'll bring the syringes. Terrific. Not, no. Be yourself, know yourself, but a capital S. Now you're talking. Know thyself, as Socrates said, the father of Western philosophy. Know thyself. Be, thys- be yourself is big. But the big self, as they call it, non-dual Vedanta, Advaita, but a capital S, the transpersonal being, not the small self, the ego, as we say in Zen. The big mind, with a capital M, the Buddha mind, not the small mind of thinking dualisms and separatist judgments. Liking and disliking, based on the delusion of ignorance, the three Buddhist poisons. I like, I don't like, and the, the difference. Oh, if I only had this, I'd be happy. Oh, if I only unhad that, get out, I'd be happy. Based on this dualism of incompleteness, of separateness. Greed, hatred, and delusion, the three Buddhist poisons, and Buddhist jargon. So this not resisting and not selfing and not manipulating and judging and not 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 nothing that's all really I, that's why i came up and offer you today the new dharmas from the new western dharma treasure tradition only you can decide whether it's worth anything to you and to you fulfilling the promise of this great and timeless yet so timely path I see our time is running, so I could talk about some other things. But um, any questions, please? This is really one of the best parts, and most important parts of Western Dharma and American Buddhism. And in case you don't know, it's not there's not that much Q and A in the old world and the Eastern traditions. So I think this is a very important, you know, work for us: laser coaching, teacher-student dialogue, whatever. I was chatting with my buddy, the American Zen Master, and i very recommendable. Bernie Glassman Roshi, founder of the Peacemaker Order, social activist, genius in the lineage of Myazumi Roshi, the first excuse me, Asian master to talk about American Buddhism in the sixties and seventies. And I heard an interview with Bernie. I was listening to a podcast, whatever that is, but I clicked on something and I heard a podcast. It sounded like an interview. Good. I liked it. There was his Jewish New York Bronx voice with his usual jokes and witticisms and genius. And he said, Bernie, what's really made the big difference to you or brought you to this state of enlightenment? And he said, ha, ha, ha. But I know what you're asking. So three things, meditation, dialogue with the teacher, and service to others, activism. That was very impressive to me from a man with a PhD in aeronautical, whatever it's called, astrophysics, and a Roshi authorization in a traditional Zen line. And he himself has passed it on to 15 or 17 Roshis. He's a wonderful teacher. Meditation, dialogue with the teacher, one-on-one, Doksan, they call it. And service, social activism, compassion and action. And he's done street retreats in the Bowery. He takes groups to witness and meditate and sit in Auschwitz every year. He is one of the few Buddhist teachers to work with the Untouchables. There's a few million Buddhist Untouchables in Southern India and Sri Lanka and so on. Very impressive. Questions, sharing, please. Hello. Hey. Hi.
1: Hi, Sarah. <clears> Hi. <throat> <clears throat> um, about not selfing, um, that really trips me up a lot and has for a long time. Um, I feel like I definitely had an early intuition that the self was sort of an illusion, and then I had some experiences that verified that. But um, it's real I'm enough. I'm still here.
2: <laughs> it's real <laughs> enough. Let's not assert that it's an illusion. It, you know, it's illusory. But it's not a, what we think it is.
1: Yeah. So, but it it it's like it gets difficult because I went on a path for a few years of really trying to live beyond the self, and then I found that. It was still myself doing that. It was like the new sure. goal it had.
2: Yeah, and then now- this is just thinking and labels and conceptual imputation. You, you know, not to pick on you, but you know, you don't really know who's doing what around here, nor do I. It's a mystery. It's all conceptual imputation. God's doing it. I'm doing it. The power people, and I don't know, make it up. Washington are doing it. You can fight over those, and you know, there's a lot. Of- going on, written, studied, talked about, and that's all fine in its realm. It's good to get our handle, hands on the steering wheel and not on the rear view mirror and expect to go in a good direction. But still, it's very relative and subjective. What is a good direction? For what purpose? Not to mention the, who's going and so on.
1: Well, forgetting about who's going, because that is very hard to grasp. No,
2: but... let's not forget about it. That's the crux of the matter. Not whether yourself is an illusion or not, and whether you should live for the self or get rid of the slay the self, as some, I don't know, martial dharmatists say. Slay the self! That doesn't sound very ahimsa, or nonviolent. Anyway, as human beings, we live in the world of form, of body and energy and relationship and family, society, whatever, even if we're a celibate monk or nun or a, 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 a hermit in a cave. where you know, eat and relate to the others. And if there's nuclear holocaust, we're part of it. And if there's, you know, comet that wipes us us, like the dinosaurs out, we're part of that. And the food and, uh, you know, the invisible connections we have. So, you know, alone and with others is very much a spectrum, not separate. But if you find out who what you are, you understand your relation to, you know, God and man, God and human, or whatever you want to call it. The relation of the little you and the
1: but transpersonal how I, being. How do I understand the instruction? It's right there. It says not selfing. So forget it be about that. Less selfing, maybe.
2: No, <laughs> it no. says not less selfing. Less selfing is still self with its ego strategy. Yes. How about uh, for you? Less selfish, less self-oriented, less self-preoccupied.
1: I'm not a very self as a matter of fact when I I'm try, talking to everybody no no I'm, I'm but this is helpful but when I try to like set goals for myself like things I want in my life I actually feel guilty. I feel like I'm somehow abandoning my spiritual quest. I feel like I'm not
2: We all need up. to have a healthy individuated adult ego structure. That's what we call self in English in modern times. And psychologists and everybody studied this and you know The goal here is not to be sitting like this all day so somebody has to come and feed and water you like a vegetable and living in a mental style. (laughs) Not the goal. Wisdom, enlightenment, all this is a higher form of sanity, not insanity producing. So watch out for those cults that tend in that direction. But to speak to your question, you know, it's a question many of us have. Uh, What's your name, by the way? Tim. Tenny? Tim. 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 To. we all need to develop from dependent child baby whatever we call it to independent and then that's not the end that's teenage independence then to realizing interdependence our intrinsic interdependence and interconnection and Closer getting towards the penultimate end, if you think of it linear, which is not really realizing autonomy within interdependence. So that's the relation of the one and the many and the self, the healthy self with the whole, with other realizing autonomy within interdependence, not just independent, hard-boiled egg, separate self, don't need anything or get rid of. You follow? So a lot of the thoughts and discussions haven't really gone into a nuanced enough discussion about this, I believe. This kind of, it's a new frontier of psychology and, and mystical or Dharma talk to understand. Realization is a little different just in the conceptual understanding. And it needs a little bit of that. So it's not either or, it's not separate or one. It's a both and and also. So autonomous within interdependence. Let me give you another example that I often use, and I've even mentioned it here yesterday or today without this particular surround for the discussion. Rather than thinking about slaying the ego, as you sometimes see in these martial texts, you know, the Bhagavad Gita or somewhere, you know, everywhere, you know, with the image of the battlefield, Dostoevsky's life is a battlefield, the battle we're all fighting, we all die in the end, blah, 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 blah. That's great literature. But now we're talking about wisdom of Dharma. Enlightening Dharma, I hope, I'm not saying I am. I'm saying this is what we're trying to explore into together. I see it more as like the bubble in the sea or the wave in the sea. Do we have to iron out the waves to see the sea, to get back to the sea, to free the sea? No. It's superficial phenomena, the different states of sea, depending on conditions, circumstances. So the bubble... You have to pop the bubble, slay the ego, kill yourself, wait till you die and get rid of this mortal coil, this bo- 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 bubble-like body to return to God and oneness? No. When you see through yourself, when you see through losing a separateness and solidity and selfing, then you realize the bubble and the sea are not two from the beginning, and the bubble doesn't get back to the sea by bursting, and there's no improvement. It's sea all along. It's H2O. It's sol- You know, it's just a metaphor. Are you with me?
1: That helped a lot, actually. It's almost like not selfing as a separate entity. Like right. The self is, forget about that.
2: Yeah. About less selfish, less self preoccupied. Oh, I'm being too, you know, I'm selfing. I'm, you know, the mind is selfing. It needs to reify things so it can deal with it. Oh, there's the right exit and the wrong exit. You can't just drive around in the oneness. Why would you be driving anyway? Where would you be going in the oneness? You'd be staying. You'd be flowing. I hope that's helpful.
1: No, Thank it you. helps. Self is part of the whole. That's a little phrase I'm going to take with me. Thanks. I'm you. going to
2: quote again. Human nature is Buddha nature. When you become you, then Buddha becomes Buddha. Until then, it's just a pie in the sky. That's from the Zen scriptures. So, the small self is part of the big self or a shadow of God's pseudopods is my best analogy. Pseudopods, like an amoeba has its false appendages. It kind it of blurbs out a little false arm or leg and then it blobs back. It's never separate. Maya Leela, it's called in Hindu philosophy, the dan- illusory dance of the one as, as the many. Then the more the merrier. The better the, you know, the more outrageous the floats, the better the parade when you have that view. The scarier the Halloween costumes, the more fun when you have that for you, not to the baby child who's afraid of the witches and goblins on the street. So that's helpful. This is a very important point if you want to talk about philosophically and I'm looking around the room, there's some serious degree laden people here. One of the reforms or differences between Buddhism and Hinduism, and I'm not here to really talk about comparative religion, but just to understand, Buddhism doesn't say everything is an illusion. It says it's like an illusion. You can't assert it's this or that. It's changing. It's subjective. It's mysterious. It's shunyata. It's not what we think it is. That's one of the—I don't know what—not unique selling point. Uh, something like that, uh, special characteristic of, of Buddha Dharma. And it's not—that's not easy. Since I'm now in the realm of not easy, go a little further. I see we have some keen, avid, not-easiers here who are good at this. That's why it says in the Sarangama Sutra, things are not what they seem to be. That's easy. Things are not what they seem to be, nor are they otherwise. That's like a koan. You can only think about it so far, and then you have to rely on some other way to penetrate it or intuit it or contemplate or something. Experience the wine is in the bottle, as we say in Dzogchen, but it gets better year by year, not by stirring and shaking and heating and adding and subtracting. So natural and ordinary is the way, but it gets better year by year. So once we see that, that's the glimpse or the recognition that we can just be ourselves, our transpersonal being, in our different roles and costumes and acts, through our duty, as it says in the Bhagavad Gita, and whatever happens, happens keep doing our best and letting go. Whatever happens, happens. And not be fooled and think that I'm doing it. Or, on the other hand, that it's random. Everything seems to be a cause and effect, but you check it out. There are no accidents. Accidents seem to have causes. And some people seem to have a lot of car accidents. If you notice, then there's always some reason if you really look into it. Inattention, inebriation, faulty equipment, something. Similar with our own accidents in life. Questions, please. Judy, over here, please. It's nice to have a young, active Mike Hopper, our yoga teacher, Judy Ricci. We'll give her a hand, a Zen hand. One hand flapping.
3: My question is about living gurus. Um,
2: Living gurus.
3: I was recently reading a Zogchen book by um, the Dalai Lama, Mm -hmm. and he was discussing the importance of a, of a guru and i feel very blessed to have had experiences of rigpa and, and the things that the teachings point to um, on my own but i've never had a guru or a, a teacher other than the teachings themselves the dharma itself the and the sangha and the buddha so can so you so that's
2: s- the ultimate refuge or reliance the buddha dharma sangha so you have the buddha as your guru and the dalai lama and others as your upa guru you're like stand-in intermediate mm-hmm. gurus and the Dharma and the Sangha. That's you know, that's the three jewels. That's the Great. real treasure, reliance, refuge. Buddha so, and guru.
3: Okay, so you don't feel that there's an added or a when I hear people, when I heard you speak this morning and when I hear you speak of your, you know, your guru and your your lineage, there's this a deep emotional connection there. And is there something missing when you don't have that? Is there a reason to seek that out?
2: when you have the other three? Um, Yes and no. It depends on you and your situation, your spiritual personality, your mentality. The guru is supposed to embody the three. Be Buddha-like in liberating you or helping you in that direction. Mm. And be Dharma-ish, not worldly-ish, or exploiting-ish or selfish Mm and Sangha-like, being like a true spiritual friend and helpmate and comrade and collaborator on the way. So it's like, I don't know, a soulmate or a love partner, or I don't know, do you miss anything, you know, what would you say if I said, do you miss, does every, you know, how, how you put, do you think, do you miss anything if you have love in your life, but you don't have children? Hmm. Or if you're not monogamous or, you know, long-term partnered, whatever. So yes, no, maybe. It's a different Different experience. people, different courses with different horses. Thank you. It is a big question in the modern day, of course, the postmodern egalitarian secular era, not to mention materialistic, technological, scientific, democratic, the guru. And with the interface of Eastern thought in the Western world, people will say all kinds of crazy shit from... We don't have gurus in the West. Jesus. To, for example. Or worse, you know, cult leaders and all. To more from the Eastern side or Western, you can't get enlightened without a guru. I also hear that. I mean, I've even read it, so it must be true. Not in my books. I'm just saying, I don't say it. But it's a big spectrum. It's like, does everybody need the parents? Well, it's hard to be born if you don't have parents, I guess, scientifically, although there may be some special means, but stay with the basics here of this analogy. But you can still grow up, even if you're an orphan, but it may greatly benefit you to have a parent or a parent figure or parents or an intact family, an intact community with the intact family, generally speaking. So... In Tibetan Buddhism, the master, the teacher, the enlightened, realized spiritual friend, the guru, whatever word you use, we call it root lama, heart lama, root lama, not just any lama, priest, cleric, root lama, heart lama, your Rinpoche, your precious master and spiritual friend. Buddha always called himself a spiritual friend, not a guru. Kalyana Mitra, a little elder, maybe on the way, kind of spiritual friend. So, you know, in Tibetan Buddhism, we emphasize that more than in some other forms of Buddhism. Just like in every religion, some emphasize more the teacher, the zaddik, the master, the sheikh than others, not to mention other life and human potential development or skill-based learning. Some emphasize the expert or the master instructor a lot. Others, you know, you get your learn to guitar book and you learn to teach yourself. So again, that's kind of up to you or, you, or you're a natural musician like, I don't know, Mozart. I mean, I guess even Mozart and and Picasso, their fathers taught them, even if they were great when they were 5 or 10, their, their painter teacher taught them, I think it was fathers in those two cases. But they excelled them pretty quick. So it's a combination of co- nurture and nature. So it depends on you. And the reason I'm saying this, it says in a lot of books, and you'll hear from a lot of pulpits, this isn't a pulpit, but I'm saying this to make a point. The preachers will tell you, you, you need a guru, you need a guru, you need. I want to know... Who do they think they're talking to? Are these people going to get a guru? Are they all going to go looking for gurus, or are they just going to go out the door again and and meet their friends at the bar? I mean, let's be practical and realistic. So I think in general, we all need to care about education system and all, but there are some self-educated people, great geniuses in the world, but that's pretty rare. So in Tibetan Buddhism, we have a tradition of a devotion and gratitude and transmission and lineage and and stuff. So I gained a lot from my gurus and not just my Hindu gurus, I guess uh, Buddhist gurus, my teachers, also my Hindu guru and also my college mentor who was like my first teacher who lit my lamp about writing and poetry and creative expression and communing with my muse, like our artist friend here, Chikki. And how that's a Dharma, it's, 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 uh, it's the best there is getting out of the way so it can come through you and express itself regardless of thinking about the future or feedback. So it's very proactive, like creative expression, not reactive, trying to fit in egocentric concerns and activity. So I hope that's helpful. The Dalai Lama said, there's, there's no such thing as a guru. It's only if people uh, want or need what you have and they make you a guru, as it were. Like it's not a job or a role. It's not something you can take a vow to or like, you know, I don't know, sort of train for. It. I don't know. This is just talk. But you get my point. He was saying, it's not that the masters and lineage make the gurus. They may give authorization and train people, but it's the students that make the guru their guru. Just like you, kind of make someone your, your benefactor or your father. You know, if you're an orphan or you're whatever, you it kind of depends on you, not on them. They're not by definition a mentor or a father figure. You're making them, you know out of mutual reciprocal need. You know, karma coming together. They say when the guru, when the disciple is ready, the guru appears. I say when the guru is ready, the disciple appears. Also, it's because there's no step two. Sometimes you know, even with my own friends and colleagues. Sometimes we, you know, I teach them or go to their retreats. Or sometimes they teach me or go to my retreats or take me to their teachers and my teachers. So that's a wonderful thing, and that's been going through history down the lineages for a long time. Last question before our afternoon session is over. Thank you. Also, there's many levels of guru. There's you know, driving instructor. There's kindergarten teacher. Just the word teacher and guru are not synonymous. You know, there's college teacher, there's, you know, Nobel Prize professor emeritus, I don't know what, you know, master educator. So a guru, too, there are different levels of teacher, or sensei, rinpoche, you know, t- those are titles, but different levels. Heart guru or just somebody who helps you learn different practices. Yes, who was who that, Marshall Lynch? Yes. Hi, long time no see. Nice to see you, dear. Nice
3: to see you, Lama. All the way from? Portland. Portlandia. Yeah. (laughs) It's pretty soggy there right now. You have to
2: say Oregon around here. (laughs) What's that? Never mind.
3: Okay. So um, your number four point it's not nothing, it's really something. It makes me think of... Um, it
2: doesn't say it's really something, but go on. But
3: you you said it. I, yeah, you, I did. Yeah. So that made me think, when you said that, it's something. It made me think of the Heart Sutra, form is emptiness, emptiness is form. And yes. within emptiness, everything exists. Forms. And I... Forms I, up. I, I read the Heart Sutra, I used to just trip on that. And slowly, slowly over time... <laughs> Getting a little bit of understanding, but thank you very much. You said it in English.
2: (laughs) Yes, the Heart of Wisdom Sutra, the Mahayana Prajnaparamita Hridaya Sutra, is a very precious, small, tight, one-page redaction of the whole 8,000 or 20,000 verses of Prajnaparamita Sutra is very precious, saying it's not this, and it's not that, and it's not this, but it's also not nothing. And it's kind of supposed to help us intuit beyond our conceptual thinking and brains and use other tools that we have. Like the heart is an organ of perception, intuition, you know, I guess feeling, and I don't know much about this, feeling and things like that. <laughs> Second sight, I mean, there's a lot of way of talking this. Feeling what others are Feeling. Breathing together and resonating or eye-gazing or tuning in, you know, helps us know what others are thinking. I wouldn't call it mind-reading. It's kind of basic. You know whether your kids are lying to you or not, because you're a little more experienced. It's not mind-reading. It is and not It's like obvious. Been there, done that. <laughs> Hard to fool me. Been there, done that. Not mind-reading. Ah, I should be in the circus. Thank you. May all beings everywhere, with whom we are inseparably, interconnected, and want to need the same as we do, may all be awakened, liberated, healed, fulfilled, and free. May there be peace in this world, and the existence, and then to war, poverty, injustice, violence, and oppression. And may we all together complete the spiritual journey. One family, one sangha, one beloved community. And again, homage to the Buddha-ness in your seat. Don't overlook it.